This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, November 22nd, 2016, episode 33, concerning some bad house guests. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Last year, I let the Thanksgiving to Christmas holiday season kind of be a moment for some gentler, cozier, homey sorts of texts, uh, at least in comparison to our more usual fare. So last year, we had two episodes on the struggles of the early communities of Dale Abbey, and I wanted to continue that tone and make it something of a holiday tradition. So this year, we're going to have a pair of episodes looking at a couple of incidents from the Chronicle of Battle Abbey. They don't have any murder or mutilation or monsters, but there will be conflict and bad behavior and, uh, in next episode, some significant attention to disease and death. But for American Thanksgiving week, I thought we'd start out with an account that culminates in a tale of misbehaving and greedy guests who rapidly wear out their welcome, a phenomenon that makes for a very relatable holiday theme, I'm guessing. This guest story is the big Thanksgiving dinner centerpiece to this episode, but it's rather short on its own, so we're going to start a bit ahead of it in the Chronicle with another account of an ecclesiastical election, this one being rather different from the one we saw last time in our election special. Uh, In that episode, Edmund was nominated to be Bishop of Durham by the members of his own cathedral chapter, and then this nomination received the approval of the king and went forward. In today's text, set almost exactly 100 years later, we're already seeing an example of a much less democratic process, where the king and the Archbishop of Canterbury summon representatives of the abbey to court and designate a new abbot, whose ultimate election by the monks of the abbey is then essentially a taken-for-granted formality. After the chronicle covers the appointment of the new abbot, we have a little account of the early days of his administration, which brings him into conflict with the bishop. This is a recurring motif throughout the Chronicle of Battle Abbey, uh, as it is in lots of other house chronicles, too. Um, But this one has added intensity because, as we might vaguely recall from episode 17 concerning the ill-gotten Casula, Battle Abbey is in the esteemed position of having been chartered by the king himself, William the Conqueror, as a memorial to the Battle of Hastings, which means it's supposed to be under the direct authority of the king and immune to the authority of the local bishop. But those local bishops often look longingly at the possessions of royal abbeys like Battle and will do all sorts of things to bring that abbey under their control. And in an age when your abbey's rights might be documented only in a 200-year-old copy of a charter housed in your library, or maybe a freshened-up forgery of a lost charter, or perhaps an imaginary one, uh, then it doesn't necessarily take much to lose those privileges. Privileges were often determined on de facto grounds rather than de jure ones. So if you had one spineless abbot who deferred to the bishop in all major conflicts, then that bishop can use precedent and custom to prove that he has authority over the abbot, or that that authority was ceded to him at some point between your copy of that musty old charter and the present day. 
So for an abbey's political history, these conflicts with bishops have a lot at stake in them, and thus they receive a lot of attention in the chronicles, even when those conflicts appear to be over something as minor and trivial as guests getting a bit haughty. And with that, let's turn to our text. I will be reading from the 1851 translation of the Chronicle by Mark Antony Lauer, with a few emendations and adjustments derived from Eleanor Searle's 1980 edition and translation of the text. In the year of the deific incarnation 1125, at the purification of Mary, the Holy Mother of God, a general edict of King Henry was promulgated throughout all England, that all churches destitute of pastors should go, through proper representatives, to the presence of the king, then beyond the sea, in order that they might receive governors. Whereupon, on behalf of Battle Abbey, an able man named Hildeward, the prior, accompanied by three of the monks, crossed the sea and presented himself before the monarch. A council being then summoned, the king, at the instance of William, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Siegfried, who had recently been advanced to the see of Chichester, appointed as abbot of battle, Warner, a monk of Canterbury, a person eminent for his modesty, wisdom, and learning. This appointment being confirmed by an edict the week after mid-Lent, the prior and his companions hastened homewards, and arrived on the Sabbath before Palm Sunday. And those who had heretofore presided giving place, the whole establishment was promptly subjected to the rule of the abbot-elect. On the approach of Easter, Warner came to England, together with Archbishop William, and having obtained consecration on the third Sunday after Easter previously to taking office, he was joyously and honorably received at Battle Abbey on the sixth day following, which happened on the 8th of the Calends of May. Having thus taken the reins of government, Abbot Warner, exercising that prudence for which he was so remarkable, began by degrees to regulate and to restore to its former state the house which, in a variety of ways, had been wasted by the king's ministers. Since that year there was a crop failure, poverty had seized the whole country. Yet, overcoming all disadvantages by prudent management, like a faithful servant of the great householder, he so administered the affairs of the house that in a short time poverty was exchanged for plenitude. We have already stated that King Henry had, in his munificence, given to this establishment the Church of Carmarthen, with its appurtenances, where some brethren had already been collected for the service of God. But Bernard, the bishop of the diocese, allured by the pleasantness of the place, was extremely desirous of subjecting it to his authority. And after the matter had frequently been brought before the king, both by himself and by those in his pay, at length, upon the election of Abbot Warner, it was adjusted by the king's giving the place to the bishop, and presenting to the Abbey of Battle, in exchange, a certain land worth seventy shillings, a member of the royal manor of Mien, called Langriche, forever free of all customs. This being confirmed by royal authority, and agreed to on both sides, the brethren immediately set out for England and returned home, while the bishop obtained the church alluded to, and the abbot took the land into his hands. Bishop Seafrid being now elevated to the see of Chichester, 
there seemed to be a mutual good understanding between him and the abbot. When, however, both had been but a short time in office, the bishop, at the instance of those about him, summoned the abbot to attend his synod. Upon this, the abbot, with prudent caution, required of a full chapter of his abbey what it behooved him to do in the matter. The brethren, alleging the custom which had hitherto been observed, explained to him that it was founded on royal authority, and that he ought not to attend to any summons or requirement of this nature. Still, if it pleased him to go thither of his own free will, he could do so without scruple. The abbot, assured by this answer, went voluntarily to the bishop, and pleaded the privileges of the abbey which he governed. He took care also to state that he had not come upon compulsion, but only to avoid a violation of the mutual charity which had hitherto subsisted between them, and to claim that he would permit himself and his abbey to remain, as formerly, in peace, lest worse misunderstanding should arise. The bishop, pacified by these reasonings, removed every occasion of complaint, and entertaining a very high regard for the abbey as well as for the abbot himself, he carefully cherished it by his counsel and aid during the period of his prelacy. Under this abbot, the restorations of the abbey went on from day to day, for he applied himself with the utmost sagacity and prudence to increase the number of the monks, and taking delight in the decent beauty of God's house, he caused a portion of the church to be covered with lead. He also busied himself to perpetuate the memory of his devotedness by procuring many noble ornaments, such as precious vessels of gold and silver for the altar service, together with capi and albs and choice palls. Thus did he vigorously discharge his stewardship in things both domestic and external, seeking at the same time, as became a well-instructed man, to promote religion for the salvation of his sons, and most honorably to preserve and recover, by legal means, the rights, possessions, and dignities of his abbey. Now, this abbot came to be somewhat dazzled by the great honor he had earned by his care in his administration. And thus it was that at the winter feast of the community's patron, St. Martin, on account of the exceptional dignity of such a service, it became his custom often to command the attendance of the Bishop of Chichester with a summons. On a certain occasion, when the bishop thus summoned had come in a friendly manner, it chanced after the festival had been duly observed that the bishop's attendance, heated with the wine of the country, began in a lofty style to upbraid the cellarers and servants of the abbey, and as if with their lord's sanction and authority, a sufficient support outside this house, threateningly to demand whatever they saw fit. But the ministers of the abbey very properly resisting them, the matter reached the ears of the bishop, who manifested the greatest indignation, which the abbot attempted to soothe in a reasonable manner. But the bishop, adding insolence to fury, the abbot's patience was at length exhausted. And when the bishop threatened to exercise the mastery and to act as if the abbey were his own, the abbot stoutly withstood him, and after many objurgations uttered a speech which is not to be forgotten, namely that no refreshment should be given either to the bishop or his followers, as was the ordinary practice. Upon this, the bishop grew pale with rage and threatened to extort it by force, 
but the abbot, manfully asserting his right to govern that royal abbey as freely as he himself did his own bishopric, they parted with mutual obstinacy. The bishop and his followers waited until the next day to see whether the abbot would keep his word. But the abbot, regardful of the interests of posterity, could by no means withdraw his determination. The bishop, therefore, unable to control the servants of the abbey, passed the hour unfed, and was obliged to procure necessary provisions for himself and his followers out of doors. A night of fury, indignation, and horrible threats followed, though the abbot and his monks passed it quietly and peaceably. When dawn came, it sent the bishop and his followers home unplacated, in a passion of indignation. It was long ere the anger between the bishop and the abbot cooled down, but it led to no consequence, save to be a warning to the future. At length, the bishop yielded to reason, and from that time they both strove to cover their former discord by acts of love and kindness. So, a happy ending after a bit of a squabble. Abbot Warner is thrown into an interesting kind of conflict of principles here in this story. On the one hand, the rule of St. Benedict, which lays out the core requirements of monastic life, has some very clear directives regarding hospitality, namely that it's offered freely and charitably. The rule says, quote, Let all guests who arrive be received like Christ, for he is going to say, I came as a guest and you received me and to let all due honor be shown, especially to the domestics of the faith and to pilgrims. But when you have a church that's entangled in a feudal culture and power structure, things get tricky, because there's also a feudal expectation that vassals will host their lord, and there are countless tales of kings and queens who just about ruined individual barons by showing up with their entourage for a lengthy and extravagant stay at one of their estates. So when an abbot has to play host to a bishop, this ambiguity arises. Is he hosting the bishop out of the Benedictine requirement to provide hospitality? Or is he paying homage as a vassal to his ruling lord? If you're an independent abbey who cannot risk giving the bishop any cause to believe that he has authority over you, then maybe those monastic ideals have to be set aside in the interests of political necessity. And it helps that there's a monastic rationalization that can work here too, which is that the abbot also has a duty, according to the rule, to protect the abbey community. And so Warner could perhaps interpret that duty as taking precedence over serving guests. The exploitation of monastic hospitality became a big enough issue that in the late 1100s you start seeing restrictions emerging, regulating how long guests were permitted to stay, and who could stay, and in what kind of accommodations... And even a hundred years before that, you can see abbots trying to get help with guests who were exploiting them. There's a surviving letter of Archbishop Lanfranc from sometime around 1080, where he chastises a bishop who has done much the same thing that Bishop Seyfried did at Battle Abbey. Uh, in, in fact, he's done even worse. And let's take a look at that letter, because it's short and to the point. Uh, indeed, it's pointed. Um, here's the text, as translated by Helen Clover and Margaret Gibson. Lanfranc, by the grace of God, Archbishop, greets Peter, Bishop of Chester. I wrote to you a few days ago. You were unwilling to accept my letter, 
scorned to read it, and very disdainfully, as I am told, threw it onto a bench. Now I am sending another, instructing and directing you, in the king's name and my own, to desist completely from all the harassment which you are said to be practicing on the monastery of Coventry, and to restore forthwith everything pertaining to that house or its lands which you have removed by force. Both the abbot and his monks have lodged a complaint with me that you forced an entry into their dormitory and broke into their strong boxes, and that you have robbed them of their horses and all their goods. Furthermore, you pulled down their houses and ordered the materials of which these were built to be taken to your own residences. Finally, you remained in that monastery with your retinue for eight days, eating up the monks' provisions. You should be aware that it is neither your role as bishop nor within your power to do these things. On the contrary, you should have been giving them the spiritual advice of a discerning pastor, and by your words and actions, setting them edifying standards of a good life and godly conduct. Bishop Peter sent to the principal's office. We might note in this letter the rather emotionally neutral salutation. Lanfranc, by the grace of God, Archbishop, greets or salutem Peter, Bishop of Chester, a hallmark of medieval letter writing is the use of exorbitant and even fawning salutations, uh, like these from some of Lanfranc's other letters. To Anselm, his lord and father, brother and friend, the sinner Lanfranc wishes God's eternal salvation. Or, Archbishop Lanfranc sends greetings and his blessing to his beloved son and friend, Abbot Adelhelm. Or, to the Lord John, Archbishop of the Normans, a man who deserves to be singled out for his holiness, Lanfranc, unworthy of the name of bishop, wishes that he may add better achievement to what has been well begun. What does Peter get? Lanfranc greets Peter. That's how you know you're in for it. Back to Battle Abbey, I think maybe the most surprising thing about this story is how smoothly it all ultimately blows over, uh, considering how tense the standoff was. And there is something a bit odd here, because just a couple of paragraphs before the guest story begins, we have the story of the first little bit of tension between the abbot and the bishop over whether or not the abbot was subject to the bishop's summons. And for this, the chronicler tells us that the bishop was reconciled with the abbot and, quote, entertaining a very high regard for the abbey as well as for the abbot himself, he carefully cherished it by his counsel and aid during the period of his prelacy. Except apparently not, because we still have this fight over hospitality coming up. Our translator, Lauer, puts a note on this statement and cites it as an example of the, quote, great inconsistency in the chronicler's narration. So what explains this inconsistency? Has there maybe been a conflation of events that actually involved two different bishops? or a chronological error in setting them out, uh, I'm inclined to think it's more just a kind of rhetorical error, uh, where the chronicler is intent on maintaining the clarity of one key point, which is that the overall relationship between Abbot Warner and Bishop Seafried was positive and not one of continual conflict, as you have sometimes with the local bishop. And so he defaults to a typically medieval bit of hyperbole in overselling how great they got on uh, after explaining how one little conflict was settled without quite factoring in that another conflict is slated to come up in the narrative. The two stories are also doing slightly different things. The first is an affirmation of the Abbey's independence from the Bishop of Chichester, a principle of vital importance regardless of who is abbot and who is bishop um, as the generations roll on. 
The story of withholding hospitality from the bishop and his entourage is also partly about demonstrating that same independence, that the bishop's household cannot command the monks as their feudal servants. But even our chronicler acknowledges at the end that there weren't any significant consequences to this bit of defiance. But this is a story that paints a picture of Abbot Warner's personality. He's the abbot who had the guts to refuse to send meals up to the bishop, uh, whom he had invited to the abbey, it's worth remembering, uh, since that also complicates reading this as just being about the abbey's rights. But this is the kind of anecdote that I fully believe would have had a very long lifespan in the oral tradition of the abbey. Remember that time when the bishop was here and his men got drunk and disorderly, and then the abbot said that if they were going to act that way, then none of them were going to get any dinner? And nobody thought he'd actually do it, so they stayed, but then he totally did it? That was totally badass. Or words to the like effect. All right, before we move on into closing business, just one more point. The feast that the bishop's men got drunk at was the Feast of Martinmas, or St. Martin's Day, which is celebrated on November 11th. St. Martin of Tours was a 4th century saint, so his tradition goes back into late antiquity. But in the Middle Ages, the Feast of St. Martin had taken on the character of a harvest festival. Part of St. Martin's legend involves him trying to hide from a crowd who are trying to proclaim him as bishop, uh, but a noisy goose gave away his hiding spot. And so one Martinmas tradition is to have roast goose for dinner. This tradition seems to have had more currency in Germany and the eastern parts of Europe than it did in France and England in the early Middle Ages, though the custom had spread west by the late Middle Ages. And though there doesn't quite seem to be any one concrete direct connection, it's probable that the roast turkey at the center of American Thanksgiving owes at least a little something to Martinmas traditions. So if we were going to have a medieval English Thanksgiving story, then the story of guests misbehaving at Battle Abbey's Martinmas dinner is probably as close as you can possibly get. Okay, I excused our special election episode from riddle or mystery word duty, so let's take care of that right now. We have a mystery word left to reckon with. That word was probably not especially mysterious to those of you who have studied classical languages or who even are just good with classical word roots in English. Our word comes from classical Latin, and it is glossema, G-L-O-S-S-E-M-A, glossema. It's a somewhat technical term of Roman rhetoric. Quintilian uses it in his Institutio Oratoria. And it means an obsolete or obscure word requiring explanation. Which is to say, glossema is our mystery word this episode, but it also describes all of our mystery words. The Romans took this word from the Greek, glossema, and glossa, or glotta, means tongue. In some dialects, the S's become T's, uh, which is a thing you also see in the Greek words melissa and melita, or thalassa and thalata, and so likewise glossa and glotta. It means tongue, literally, as in the epiglottis, uh, and also figuratively, as language or native tongue. And we use the same metaphor in English, and the Romans used the same metaphor, lingua being both tongue the muscle and tongue the language. So Quintilian borrowed the Greek to express uh, this linguistic concept of a word whose meaning has to be explained. In later Latin, glossima gets reduced down to just glossa, and the plural glossi 
comes to mean a collection of such words with explanations, which of course leads us towards our English word, glossary. But before we get there, glossa enters Middle English as glose, uh, G-L-O-Z-E or S-E, and gets re-spelled as gloss, G-L-O-S-S, by humanists in early modern English uh, to closer match the Latin form. But let's pause briefly in Middle English to observe something. There's an interesting bit of semantic merging that happens around this word, uh, at least as I can best trace it in the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, involving the use of the noun glose to mean deceitful talk or flattery. So the word starts out meaning a gloss, as we would use that term today, meaning a marginal comment or definition or explanation of a word or passage. But that sense is sometimes used, as the OED puts it, quote, in a sinister sense, a sophistical or disingenuous interpretation, which presumably leads to the idea of an insincere comment or insincere praise or spin, we might say today, which then leads to lines like this one from Chaucer's Squire's Tale. This is very a sooth withouten gloss, or this is a truth without gloss. Or in the Townley plays, there's a line, Thou hast made many glows with thy false talking. But semantically, this seems to get tangled up with our other word, gloss, a shiny surface. The etymology of this other gloss is a bit obscure, but it's almost certainly derived from the same stem that gives us glass, which makes a lot of sense in the specific terminology of pottery, glass to glaze to gloss. But this shiny gloss can also be used to mean a deceptive surface appearance or superficiality. So you end up with this fun conundrum of two different words that are homonyms but which, in some contexts, end up also having the same meaning. And at that point, what, what are they? The defining trait of homonyms is that they look the same, but have different meanings. Once they look the same and mean the same thing, have they just become the same word? Even though there are two separate etymological evolutionary branches leading to each of them, or to it, as the case may be, uh, it's really confusing. Uh, if there are any linguists out there who listen to the show and who can gloss this gloss phenomenon for me, uh, do please send me a tweet. And now we need a new riddle, and here's one offered in the spirit of traditional holiday overeating. I have a little pig, and the more corn I throw to him, the more noise he makes. Once again, I have a little pig, and the more corn I throw to him, the more noise he makes. So what is that image a metaphor for? And I'll give you a hint. It's an inanimate thing more commonly encountered in the medieval world than today. I'll be back with the answer in about two weeks. Until then, if you have insight into what to call two homonyms that also mean the same thing, or if you want to take a guess at the riddle's answer, you can tweet at me, at MDTPodcast. Or if you're not a Twitterer and the only bird you want to see this weekend is the one turning golden brown in your oven, then you can email thoughts, questions, or corrections to me at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. Or if you just want to get information about this and every episode of the show or leave a comment on an episode, you can do all of that at our website, the aforementioned medievaldeathtrip.com. So until next time, whether you will have guests or be one, here's hoping your holiday season proceeds amicably. Safe travels, good eating, and thanks for listening.